You may open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. I want to return this morning to the study of the millennium. What does the word milla mean in Latin? One thousand. When we speak of the millennium, we're talking about the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ that is spoken of only once in the Bible by that expression in Revelation chapter 20. We are study, calling this study the gospel millennium because we believe that we are in that millennium right now under the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ over a spiritual kingdom and that a final day is coming soon that's going to wrap up all the affairs. The kingdom that we're in right now is the last kingdom. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be removed. It cannot be taken away. The shaking already occurred and it shook away the Old Testament kingdom to leave this precious one that we're in right now. We have come to Mount Zion. We've come to the city of the living God. We've come to the blood that speaketh better things than that of Abel. We've come to the Lord Jesus Christ and innumerable company of angels, the general assembly above, whose names are written in heaven and the spirits of just men made perfect. That is where we are right now in this assembly. You say, I can't see it. We walk by faith. The world out there is looking for an earthly kingdom. They walk by sight. Paul said we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Because the things that are not seen are eternal things. The things that are seen are very temporal. All of you children, what we're dealing with is the kingdom of God. Does God have a kingdom? Is Jesus Christ the king? And is it an exciting thing to be part of? I'll even let you go that far. The answer to all those questions are yes, yes, and yes. And I'm going to tell you today how you can get into that kingdom. Some of you in here are not in that kingdom yet. You haven't kissed the sun yet. You haven't submitted yourself to the King, Lord Jesus Christ. And I want all of you to. We all want to live faithfully for Him. The world out there, the religious world, we don't care about the rest of the world. We don't really care about the religious world either. But the religious world has a doctrine called premillennialism in which they believe that Jesus Christ is not truly a king yet. He's not sitting on David's throne yet. He hasn't bound the devil yet. He hasn't cast the devil out of heaven yet. Oh, he hasn't really done much of anything yet. And he is waiting to establish a kingdom on earth headquartered in Jerusalem, Israel. A carnal kingdom, a visible kingdom, a kingdom of this world, a kingdom that comes with observation, all contrary to what Jesus taught. And we don't believe any of that. We believe that Jesus Christ is over a spiritual kingdom you can't see with your eyes because His kingdom is among you. It doesn't come with observation. It's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Oh, but it is a kingdom. There is a Lord and a sovereign over it that's gonna, that is going to save us from all enemies and going to deliver us up to God as His dear children. He's not going to lose a single one. Now, when has there ever been a king that's engaged in a mortal conflict that never lost a single one? The Lord Jesus Christ will not lose a single one. He's going to deliver us up to God and the whole kingdom, and He's going to put down all rule and all authority and crush all His enemies. He will soon reveal Himself to be the blessed and only potentate. We are sick of the Jewish fables that are talking about an earthly kingdom in this world that will make the Jews the preeminent race on earth again. We don't see any such thing in the Bible. 
when we see an, an inspired apostle that was a Jew writing Jews, he told them in Hebrews chapter 12 that they had already come to the kingdom. They weren't to be looking for one in the millennium. They had already come to it because they were in the millennium. Hebrews chapter 12 is that passage I've read to you so many times, I'd be embarrassed to turn you to it again. And so we'll just quote it. But I've already quoted it. So should I be ashamed? I can't be ashamed. Ye are come unto Mount Zion. Not ye will come, but ye are come. And the shaking has already taken place and left the kingdom of the New Testament church, which is the gospel reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, which fulfills the words I began with a few minutes ago. The Lord Jesus Christ came preaching into the region round about Galilee. And what was His message? The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. That means there isn't any more time. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Both John and Jesus preached that. And the kingdom has been here. And I want to tell you something. They say the prophets didn't see anything about the last 2,000 years. I say the prophets saw everything about the last 2,000 years. When they spoke of righteousness and the light of the Lord Jesus Christ reaching the Gentiles and covering the earth, they're talking about right now. Because look where we are. We're on the other side of the earth. We are the uttermost parts of the earth. And the gospel has come even to us. And we own Jesus Christ as Lord. And we would die in His service. At least our ancestors would. I hope we would. We know what a millennium is. I have you turn to Acts chapter 15. I just got to start with this one. There's so many places I could start. Listen, this can't be a 20 sermon series on the millennium. I don't need it. Thank you. Acts chapter 15. Let me read to you what C.I. Schofield stuck in his Bible that brought about the popularity of this premillennial idea that a Jewish kingdom on earth, visible, not spiritual, but carnal and earthly and physical and literal, on earth, the man that popularized it is C.I. Schofield. He had no humility at all. He stole a King James Bible because it wasn't copyrighted, planted Schofield on it as a reference Bible and sold it. This was 1909. 97 years this thing has been sold. 1967, they revised it a little bit to get rid of some of the glaring errors in it. And it was called the New Schofield Reference Bible. But I want to read to you about the Council of Jerusalem. What he said about it. Dispensationally. That means we don't believe that the present 2,000 years is important at all. The real issue is the kingdom of God coming in the future. That's what dispensationalism is. God has had at least seven different ways of dealing with the human race. And those seven different ways are how do you understand the whole Bible. And the real key is to understand that he really only wants to deal with Jews. And he's going to do that in the millennium. That's what dispensationalism is. The land of Israel has not yet been given to Israel and some of the things we've been over. Here's what he says. Dispensationally, this is the most important passage in the New Testament. Now, I'm not picking on his weakest link. He said, dispensationally, this is the most important passage in the New Testament. Let's read it. Let's read what he considers the most important. And then we'll see what he says about it. Acts 15. What's the issue? Why is there a church council called? 
the Gentiles are being converted so fast and the Jews are complaining about it that they're not keeping the law of Moses. And so the whole church had to come together because the Jews were saying they should still be keeping the old covenant while the Gentiles were so excited to hear about Jesus Christ and the new covenant. So they had to settle the issue. So they came together. Verse 6 tells us that they all got together. Verses 1 through 5 tell us where they met and how they met and, and the very the arguments that brought about the meeting. Peter stood up first and explained about the conversion of an Italian. That was a problem for Jews. Cornelius the Italian of the Italian band had been converted in Acts chapter 10. He had been called in the carpet in Acts chapter 11 for going and visiting a Gentile and preaching the gospel to him. And he stands up first and explains how that God chose him with a special vision on that rooftop of, of his house to go and preach to the Gentiles. And he tells about that. And he said, God bear witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. He made no difference between us and them. Verse 9, purifying their hearts by faith, he granted them faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Not they shall be saved even as we, but we shall be saved even as they. Praise the Lord. Peter had seen such a visible demonstration of the grace of God in the lives of these Gentiles that he's exalting God's operation of grace among them. Then when he sat down, Paul stood up. Look at verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And they had already made their first circuit of the Roman Empire and had preached the gospel. And many Gentiles had been converted and churches established. And they had ordained elders in those churches, as Acts chapters 13 and 14 tell us. So they finish. Verse 13. And after they had held their peace, you know, Paul probably took a while. It, I, I think it was probably longer than one verse. Do you, do you agree with me? Do you think Paul had more to say than that one verse? He could preach till dawn after a man died at midnight. Remember? The young man that fell out of the third story window? Yes, they slept even in those days. But not today. Not today, because today may be the last time we get to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be the last one. Let's use it. And after they had held their peace, that's Peter, Barnabas, and Paul, James answered saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. The Holy Spirit's going to give James the summary lesson. Here's the bottom line of the council at Jerusalem. Simeon, that's Peter. Is it okay with you if God calls him Peter in one place in the same chapter and Simeon in another place in the chapter? Don't forget that. The King James Bible, if you'll read the whole thing, will teach you how to study the Bible. When you run into different names for men, realize they had different names, just like you do. I see in front of me a Robert and a Bob, and I bet he was called as a boy sometimes, Bobby. Shame to even say that in public, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Robert's much better. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Cornelius is what... James is referring to here in what Peter had just told them. And to this, agree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. 
known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. This is not a parenthesis. This is something God had known and planned from the beginning of the world, and the prophets had spoken of it. He says, this is the most important passage in the Bible. I love it when they send forth their champion. Don't you? Well, let's take our little shepherd's bag with a few. We don't need a few, do we? We only need one. Let's just go to Acts chapter 15. We just read it. James said in verse 15, to this agree the words of the prophets. Prophets, as it is written. And he picks one for an example. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David and raise up its ruins because it's fallen down. After Israel was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar in about 500, I'm just rounding them off, 500 B.C., and they did come back, they did build their city, they did build their temple, but they never had much of a kingdom. You know, the man that was king of the Jews right now was a man named Herod. He was an appointee of the Roman government. He wasn't even a Jew. He was an Edomite. Pilate was the governor of Judea. They were under Roman rule. The tabernacle of David has fallen down. Where's the kingdom of God in the earth? It had fallen down for a while. Had the genealogies been lost of the royal seed? Are you with me, Are you with me, brethren? Had the genealogy been lost of the royal seed? Was the Lord Jesus Christ legally the son of David by his father Joseph? His legal father Joseph. Was Jesus Christ of the seed of David by his biological mother Mary? Amen. We have two genealogies, Matthew 1 and Luke 3. Jesus was the son of David by his mother and his legal father. Though it had fallen down, God's promises had not fallen down. And so we read here that the prophets had foretold this time that God would raise up David's kingdom again with his son on the throne, but the kingdom would be made up of Gentiles. That's what it said. He, James quotes, I will return, I will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down, I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles. That residue of men is the remnant of the Jews. There was Jews and Gentiles that made up that early church. Upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. What is that verse quoted for there? What is Amos chapter 9 quoted for right there? But James is saying, this is that, what Peter just told us, the conversion of an Italian and his family and his household and some of his servants and the formation of churches by the preaching ministry of Barnabas and Paul is the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. And yet they say, in their most important passage, the prophets never saw the church. Quote, after this, the outcalling, I will return. James quotes from Amos 9, 11, and 12. The verses which follow in Amos describe the final regathering of Israel, which the other prophets invariably, invariably connect with the fulfillment of the Davidic company, Davidic covenant. And I will build again the tabernacle of David, reestablishing the Davidic rule over Israel. All of this is saying it is still in the future based on these words after this. Now let me show you how he reasons. This is how they reason in their most powerful passage. If you look at verse 16, the first two words are after this. James says this. 
James says, Ben and brethren, listen to me. The Lord's giving me the answer right now. Verse 14, Simeon's told us, Peter told us how God brought Gentiles into the church to believe in the gospel. Verses 15, and the prophets told us about this, and in fact they wrote about it, and I'll even give you an example. And then he quotes verses 16 and 17. They look at verse 14, quote, after this, that is the out calling, I will come, I will return. This is Schofield saying it. In verse 14, they have the words of what Peter had said, that God would take for Himself a people out of the Gentiles. That's what they call the outcalling. They make this great big deal that the word church in the, in the Greek is ecclesia, which means the out, the, those that are called out. None of that makes any difference. In the world, it doesn't make a bit of sense, and it doesn't help you understand a thing. You all know what a church is. It's a congregation of people that have left the world to follow Jesus Christ. That's all it is. But they use that word called out. So they look at verse 14, where Peter had said that God had called Himself a people out of, from among the Gentiles for His name. And then they take the word after this, I will return, and they mean after this, after God is all done calling out the Gentiles, I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, meaning 2,000 years hence. After this are Amos' words. Are Amos' words. And James has just said, everything Amos wrote in Amos 9, 11, and 12 is exactly what Peter just told us. But they corrupt it by taking words of Amos and making them words of Peter or making them words of James about something coming yet in the future. Are you able to follow that without seeing it in front of you on a diagram? I hope you can follow that. They make their turn on the words after this. The words after this are Amos. That after he recovered Israel out of Babylon, he was going to do something bigger. He was going to rebuild the the tabernacle of David with Gentiles, and it was fulfilled in Acts 15. I can't waste any more time on that. That's a waste of time. But I want you to know how men lie with the Bible. James is calling up that passage not to talk about something 2,000 years away. James brought up Amos chapter 9 to explain to a gathered assembly with the greatest controversy in the history of the true church that the prophets had spoken about this very event of Gentiles being converted right then and there with Cornelius being an example of them. Are you all with me on that? That's an example of what we're fighting against. And brethren, I cannot stand premillennialism. Premillennialism is not a matter of liberty. Premillennialism is a heresy, and it's blasphemy to think that Jesus Christ did not fulfill all the promises and is not sitting on the throne of David at this time. I don't care how high you make him, you're not making him high enough if he's not on David's throne. If he's not sitting on the holy hill of Zion right now, he's not high enough, and you're guilty of blasphemy. The Lord Jesus Christ is reigning right now over all the world, all the angels, principalities, powers, every might, and every name that is named in this world, and the world to come is under him. He's far above them all. He's not waiting to be far above them all. And this is why I am preaching about the kingdom of God. And you can this day reaffirm your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ as your King and your Lord. And those of you that have not joined His kingdom, you can join His kingdom. Oh, it's exciting to be a member of His kingdom. Listen, when you join the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not knighted with a sword touch on each shoulder. 
I need the Lord of Mark chapter 1 to come and take away my lisping tongue. If you read Mark chapter 1 last night, you know he was able to heal all manner of disease. Sometimes I get one. When you join the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not knighted with the touch of a sword on each shoulder. When you join His army, you do not swear allegiance to some piece of paper written by fallible men. When you join His kingdom, you allow yourself to be publicly humiliated by burial in water and resurrection up out of that water to show that you are a member of His kingdom and that you're swearing allegiance to rise out of that water and to walk in newness of life and to serve Him for the rest of your life in the belief that there is a resurrection from the dead, that your king is so great that even if your body dies and they put you in a cemetery, your king is coming to rescue you on his white horse and tear you out of that cemetery and reunite you body, soul, and spirit and take you to heaven forever. And this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a testimony of the grace of God and of His kingdom. When we say the millennium, all we're talking about is the reign of Jesus Christ. That's what they mean by it. And we'll accept that definition. We don't find the word millennium in the Bible, so it doesn't mean anything to us much. We find the thousand-year reign, but we know that thousand years is a figurative expression for a long period of time. The time between the first coming and the second coming is when Jesus Christ is reigning with His saints. When was the kingdom of God set up in the earth? Let's answer a few questions this morning. Go back to Daniel chapter 2. We've been over this verse. Repetition is part of teaching. Daniel chapter 2, you read it last night if you read the preparatory chapters. It was an exciting chapter. Even children down to five or six years of age should have been excited about Daniel chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that troubled him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't used to being troubled. If anything troubled him, he just had them chopped in pieces and their houses turned into a dunghill. He had a little bit of authority. He didn't answer to Congress, and the Supreme Court didn't tell him that was cruel and unusual punishment. But he had a dream that troubled him. And in the morning he called in all the wise men of Babylon and said, Tell me my dream and explain it to me. And they said, King, tell us a dream. We'll be happy to interpret it for you. We are vested with all the wisdom of the gods. And we're able to help you. He said, Well, I can't even remember it. I want, I want to make sure you tell me the truth. So why don't you tell me the dream, then tell me the interpretation, and I'll know the interpretation is true. If I tell you the dream, then you'll just make something up that'll be a little distant in the future until I forget about the dream. No, you tell me the dream. And if you don't tell me the dream, you're not going to get just demoted. I'm going to chop you in pieces and turn your houses into a dunghill. You've never seen authority like that in all your lives. I want to tell you something about the God of heaven. He loved Nebuchadnezzar. You go look up in the Bible, my servant, and see how many times God called Nebuchadnezzar my servant. Do you know what he says about that golden image? Who was the golden head? Thou art that golden head. The Bible says that God considers a very beautiful sight to be a king against whom there is no rising up. God loves authority because guess what? He's got it all. And when he gives a bunch of it to a man on earth, he just likes the sight. He loves to hear a lion roar at night and someone quiver and have their loins loose six miles away. He loves a king against whom there is no rising up. The God of heaven loves it. And this king says, I don't trust you guys. I know I've got hundreds of you living off my payroll, but I want you to tell me the dream. And if you can't tell me the dream, you're out of here. And it's, it wasn't just go look for their job. 
It was to check out your eternal reward. What a, what a, did you enjoy that chapter? It's a wonderful chapter. That, this is history. Do you know what this would do to kids in school if in History 101 you had to, you had to go through Daniel the first six chapters? You know what they're studying? You gotta, oh, don't get snaking. Those of you that have been know what I'm talking about, don't you? Psychology 101. History 101. This is history. This is the greatest monarch that ever lived, and you won't learn a single thing about him in History 101 hardly. And this is all about him right here. Because wouldn't you want to know this? The rest of human history on earth being forecast by a dream. You know the story. I can't go through the story. I love the story. I had, I had a great... I've been through Daniel chapter 2 a few times in my life. And last night was just as was pleasant as it's ever been to me. Well, you know what the image is. There's a big image there that he sees in his dream. Daniel's able to come to him because Daniel has the wisdom of the, not the holy gods, the holy God. And he came and told Nebuchadnezzar, this dream is revealed to me, not for your sake, but for the sake of those that are with me, for the protection of Daniel and his brothers. Because Daniel and his friends were going to be put to death themselves if they couldn't come up with an interpretation. And Daniel said, King, you saw a great image. Can you, Brother, I want you to sit in the seat, the throne of Babylon, with Nebuchadnezzar when a man stands up in front of him. You saw a great image that had a gold head, silver shoulders, brass belly, and, and legs were made of iron and clay. Now, now how, what's, what's the probability of guessing that if you're one of these guessers? Can you, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's spastic. You can read about his, he's, he's impulsive. He, he was impulsively excited already. Because here's a man that just told him exactly what he saw. And he knows he's about to get a real interpretation. And do you know what the first words are? Thou, O king, art a king of kings. You are the greatest king God has ever put on earth. Thou art this head of gold. He, he liked himself. So that, that, would have been a, that would have been a good opening for Daniel. My, my children wanted to point that out last night to me, that I'm sure that got Daniel started off well, on a good foot. I'll be happy to listen to the rest of what you have to say, because everything after that head of gold is an inferior metal. But you know what? The God of heaven told him who had made him a king. And if you go read those verses, the God of heaven said, listen, thou art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. Everything you have is from God, even though he was a pagan. Daniel 2 is wonderful. Head of gold, Babylonian Empire. Shoulders of silver. Medo-Persian, thank you, Daniel. Belly of brass. Greek. Legs of iron and clay. Roman, not a doubt about it. The four kingdoms, the four empires of the world to follow from Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom split in two with two legs. It was divided. The Bible tells us it was divided in Daniel chapter 2. Do you remember that Constantine removed the capital from Rome, moved it to Constantinople at the other end of the Mediterranean Sea? It was split. They tried to amalgamate all the kingdoms that they had conquered. They couldn't do it. There was partly strength, partly weakness. And then there was a stone that was cut out of a mountain without hands. Now, when something's cut out without hands, who cut it out? The God of heaven cut it out. And that stone came and smote the image in its feet. Not in the Babylonian part, not in the Persian part, not in the Greek part, in its feet toward the latter end of the Roman kingdom. 
And it grew and it filled the earth. And that is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's never been a kingdom since. You look, at a, you look at a globe today, there's not one color that stretches from India to Ethiopia to the British Isles, and at this time there was one color that covered all that territory, and it was Rome. There were garrisons in, Brit- in the British Isles from 50 B.C. on after Julius Caesar had visited those isles. It was Rome. But that's been dashed in pieces by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in verse Acts, Daniel 2.44, as Daniel gives the interpretation, the application, and describes that stone, he says in verse 44, In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Brethren, that is our kingdom. I present to you the Lord Jesus Christ who sits on a throne and He's coming back for us. Serve Him with fear today. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. He's not only coming for us, He died for us. There's never been a king like Him in the history of the world. He's our brother and He's our friend. He's our Lord and our Savior. He's our priest and our bishop. He's our creator and our sustainer. He's everything. He's all in all. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the door and He's the key to the door. He opens and no man shuts. He shuts and no man opens. He has the power and authority of hell and death. He's my king, and I love him, and I'm very blessed to preach him. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. Nebuchadnezzar died. His sons died. His grandson died a horrible death. And his kingdom was left to the Medes and the Persians. The Medes and the Persians came and sat down and ate and drank out of their vessels and slept in their beds and took their women. And then the Greeks came and did the same thing to the Persians. And then Rome came and did the same thing to the Greeks. Caesar Augustus walked into Egypt, and Cleopatra that had taken down Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, he despised her. She killed herself rather than meet Caesar Augustus. And brethren, we come to a verse in the Bible that says, And the days of Caesar Augustus, there went out a decree that all the world should be taxed, And do you know what that decree did? It brought our brother Joseph and his espoused wife Mary to a little town called Bethlehem that he that is called the Ancient of Days in his divine nature could be born. And unto us a son is given and a child is born who shall be called the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. The angels announced his birth saying, Peace on earth! Because the Prince of Peace had just been born. And do you know how he's going to bring about peace? He's not going to bring about a peace by a compromising gospel. He's going to bring about peace by crushing His enemies. He's going to make peace for us with God by the death of Himself on the cross. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. It's the good news that God has saved you and has set forth a King that will deliver you in this life and in the world to come. And we're going to rejoice around Him and enjoy the riches of His kingdom forever and ever. And ever. Do you love them this morning? Is it too much to put down a few things in your life because He tells you to? He's a king. It shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. This is the final kingdom there is in the government of the earth. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and we're part of it this morning. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever.
For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof true. Was Nebuchadnezzar excited? Was Daniel promoted? Did he save the lives of his friends? Wonderful, wonderful chapter. This just gets you warmed up for the rest of Daniel. In the days of these kings, I just gave you a passage that makes my skin crawl with pleasure. In the days that Caesar Augustus gave forth a decree. Come over to, come over to Luke. That's Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. Come over to Luke. We're answering a question. I am writing an extensive outline on the gospel millennium in the form of a catechism. Question and answer, question and answer, all the way through. To lead people to the truth that our Jesus Christ is King, and the kingdom has been established, and He's reigning with His saints right now. In the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. Now it explains who those kings are, that each king had absorbed the previous kings, and the stone smote the image in its feet. So what, what empire was in rule when the kingdom of God was established on the earth? Rome. And so we come to Luke chapter 2, and it says, It came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria, and all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of, brethren, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary his espoused wife, being great with child. Does that, does that give you pleasure to hear those words spoken? This is history. This is history. Those verses I just read to you are worth more than all the history that you can learn in any college, anywhere. This history. A woman was pregnant, was large with her child. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, who was going to rule the nations with a rod of iron and His kingdom would never end. This is history of a kingdom and a king. And it was in the days of the Roman Empire because look at Caesar Augustus. And we can read all we want to know about Caesar Augustus. We can read about his parents. We can read about his conquests. We can read about his life, his wives, his errors, his successes. We can read about him because it was the Roman Empire and it's closer to our time. Chapter 3. Chapter 3. Verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Caesar Augustus has died. We have a new Caesar. Because chapter 2 is about the birth of our Lord. Chapter 3 is about the ministry of our Lord. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, why do we need to know that? Because it says in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. That's why. Theophilus, to whom Luke wrote this epistle, and to whom Luke wrote the Acts of the Apostles, would have been able to determine the exact year of these events because of all these dated events. They were all circulating coins that told when Tiberius Caesar had become Caesar. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, 
Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ituria, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias the Tetrarch of Abilene. Annas and Caiaphas being the high priests, the word of God came unto John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. There's John out there. He's been out there a long time. He's been out there 30 years. Waiting. He was a wild man. He was like Elijah. He was probably fed by ravens. When they brought him locusts, he ate. He found locusts and wild honey. He was going to come in the spirit and power of Elias. Elijah. The Lord comes to him. The Word of God came to John. He came into all the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And you can go read about his sermon there that he lays upon the people. And they're all musing of him whether he's the Christ, but he tells them, No, I'm not the Christ. I indeed baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me that is mightier than I am. I'm not even worthy to loose his shoestrings. He'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And his fan is in his hand, and he's ready to burn up you people. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. John came preaching, Repent! Repent and be baptized. Repent. That's why he's called the Baptist. He's the first baptizer. He's the first Baptist. We compare the Gospels. The Bible tells us to compare spiritual things with spiritual. So when we come to Matthew and we read his account, it will help shed light on the wording that he used. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if you go down and read the rest of chapter 3, it's the same sermon that he preached in Luke chapter 3. But I wanted you to get the wording here that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Now back to Luke 16, 16. Luke chapter 16. Don't mind turning the pages We compare Scripture with Scripture because we let the Bible interpret the Bible. Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. We are answering a question. When was the kingdom of God set up in the earth? Daniel said it's going to be set up in the days of these kings... And we know that it's Roman kings, the fourth empire of Daniel chapter 2. We come to Luke 2, 1, we see Caesar Augustus, the king is born. We come to Luke 3, we see Tiberius Caesar, the king, is announced and presented to Israel by John the Baptist. John the Baptist says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then we turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 where Jesus said, and I've read this already to you this morning, Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. John calls it the kingdom of heaven, Jesus calls it the kingdom of God. It's the same kingdom because it was the God of heaven that set up the kingdom. Now that's a, you may be thinking that's a simple point, but I want you to lay hold of it. Daniel 2.44 said, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. If the God of heaven sets up a kingdom, what do we call the kingdom? The kingdom of God who set it up or the kingdom of heaven where God dwells. The reason that's important is C.I. Schofield says the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are two different things. Incredible. Look what Jesus preached. The same message as John. 
verse 14 of Mark chapter 1, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled. What time? The time of Daniel. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Notice, repent. John preached repentance to get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus preached repentance to get into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was here and men were pressing into it according to Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were until John. That was Old Testament. Beginning with John the Baptist, a new kingdom was established on earth by the ministry of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. Those men that were in that kingdom pressed into it. It takes a decision. It takes some effort to get into the kingdom of God. You need to press into it. It requires repentance. It means changing your life. It means some effort. Thank you, Lord, for your kingdom. How do men get into the kingdom? Look at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. I like what I'm hearing. You may be saying to yourselves, I like thinking about Nebuchadnezzar and real history of the world. Nebuchadnezzar, and then the Persian kings, and then Alexander the Great and the Greek kings, and then the Roman kings, and some of those Caesars are even mentioned. You've mentioned Augustus, and you've mentioned Tiberius. But then you've mentioned that Jesus Christ, He's not really in a manger. He's not really on a crucifix. You're presenting Him as a king. How do I enter His kingdom? Matthew chapter 11. Let's connect a few verses. We saw already that men pressed into that kingdom. Verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Men are violently pressing themselves into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven was not being overthrown by men. Men were overthrowing themselves to get into the kingdom of heaven. That's how we understand that verse. Men were pressing into it by comparing this verse with Luke 16.16. They were pressing into it by repentance. The the violence in their lives. Zacchaeus gave an example of the violence in his life. When he came down out of that sycamore tree, the crowd began to murmur, this man's an embezzler, he's a thief. Zacchaeus said, I give half of my goods this day to the poor, and if I've wronged any man, I'll restore fourfold. Jesus said today, salvation's come to this house. That, That is a violent change of a man's life. Chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We had it read to us this morning. Now we'll put a little bit of a sense on it. Our brother Charlie read this, these verses to us. A man had two sons. One, said, one son said, I go, and he didn't go. Those were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and the priests. They said, we're God's children. We're the members of His kingdom. We've got His kingdom. They said, we're the ones, but they didn't go when they heard John preach. Then there were publicans, then there were publicans and harlots who had never professed to be very religious. They were pretty interested in money for two different, on, on two different ways of getting it. But when they heard John, they said, we will go, and they went. And that's the explanation there, which Jesus gave us that explanation if you were listening closely. But we come to Matthew 21, 31, and we're, we're answering the question, how did men get into the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Whether of them twain did the will of his father, Jesus asked in Matthew 21, 31. They say unto him, the first. Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots 
go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, and ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. See, they had said, we are God's children, but then they wouldn't go. There were others that said, we ain't nothing but sinners, but they went. The publicans and the harlots went in. Now look at Luke chapter 7. We're comparing the gospel accounts. When you read one gospel, you better read the other gospels as well, because the other gospels help you interpret any one gospel. Luke chapter 7, verses 29 and 30. And all the people that heard him, that is John the Baptist, and the publicans, we just had them mentioned, didn't we? The publicans went into the kingdom of God before the scribes and Pharisees. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. There's the difference right there. Right there. In Matthew chapter 21, the publicans and the harlots went into the kingdom. The scribes and the Pharisees would not. When we come to Luke, we find out exactly what the difference was. The publicans and the harlots would repent and be baptized, and the scribes and the Pharisees would not. The entrance into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, God's appointed Messiah, the Savior from sin, and the ruler of the kingdom, and repent of your sins and humble yourself before Him in the waters of baptism. And this is the same gospel Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. He presents Jesus Christ as King. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, He hath made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. The, the, the men said, what shall we do? Peter's answer, identical, identical to John and Jesus. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's how you get into the kingdom. Right there. Look at Acts chapter 8. I just quoted to you from Acts 2. Turn to Acts chapter 8. Things haven't changed a bit. Maybe now you're just tasting a little bit why I get so excited about baptism. I love baptism. I wish I could be rebaptized today. Just a little. Because I know the Lord doesn't want me to. But baptism is a wonderful ordinance. Because it's where you swear allegiance to your king. I get to participate though once in a while, don't I? Acts chapter 8. Philip the evangelist. He wasn't content with being a deacon for long. He, he was, God, God raised him up to be an evangelist as well. And when there was a persecution in Jerusalem, he was no longer taking care of widows there. He went down, he went to Samaria. Remember, Jesus had said, you're going to preach me first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. Philip the evangelist takes the gospel to the city of Samaria. Look at what it says in, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 8. And there was great joy in that city. Praise the Lord. The gospel had come to that city. And there were men that the Lord had prepared to hear it and to rejoice in it. You know, the Bible tells us, and as many as were ordained to eternal life, believe. Unless the Lord's ordained you to eternal life, you're not going to hear the gospel, believe it, and especially rejoice. But this city was rejoicing because there were a lot of elect there. Look what it says in verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ... They were baptized, both men and women. There it is again. 
when you preach the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the act of obedience is repent, believe, believe, repent, whichever, however you want to hear it worded, and to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That is how you enter the kingdom of Jesus Christ visibly on earth. That is how you publicly declare your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and enter his kingdom. And you know, one of you brothers read this morning from Acts chapter 28, and there was the Apostle Paul in Rome many years after this, still preaching the kingdom of God and the things concerning Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That is the gospel of the kingdom. Schofield, here we go again. Schofield says the gospel of the grace of God and the gospel of the kingdom are totally two different things. Every word in Matthew after Matthew chapter 12 verses 46 through 50 is for the millennial kingdom. It's so sick. It's so twisted. They believe it without ever studying it. They just parrot a man who put his name on God's words. Is any other kingdom foretold in the Bible? None. No other kingdom. This is it. We're going to get to Revelation 20. By the time we get there, you're going to read through it so simply. There's no other kingdom described in the Bible. This is the last kingdom. I've got to show you one more time. Hebrews 12, 28. I won't read all, all the six verses leading up to it, but you've got to know this. You've got to remember this. This is the last kingdom. There isn't another kingdom coming. This kingdom will be delivered up to God. It's not that this kingdom ends and there'll be another one. This kingdom is going to be delivered up to God so that we can all be part of an eternal kingdom in heaven. Hebrews 12, 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. This is it. There's no other kingdom. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We are members of His kingdom, and He has, He burned up His people under the old covenant on various occasions for their disobedience, and we better pay attention to Him now, who is speaking to us from heaven, lest He chasten us as well. Did Jesus offer the Jews a future kingdom on earth? No! Jesus did not offer the Jews a future kingdom on earth. He told them their kingdom that He had given to them would be taken from them and given to nation, bringing forth the fruits, meat for repentance. Matthew chapter 21, we read it last week, or two weeks ago. He offered blessings and life in this world to come, in this life and in the world to come, but not in a millennium. Jesus told Peter, when Peter said, we've forsaken all to follow you, Jesus said, no one's forsaken anything to follow me, that I haven't replaced a hundredfold in this life and given them eternal life in the world to come. Do you know what he left out? He left out anything in the millennium. Jesus never offered the Jews any other kingdom. Jesus offered them the gospel of Jesus Christ and they turned from it and rejected it except his elect among them who believed it and those who were not blinded. He told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Now how can they make his kingdom of this world? How, how, this is so simple. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, meaning my kingdom does not look like your kingdom. My kingdom does not look like the Caesar that you report to. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would pull swords right now and fight your little garrison. But my kingdom is not of this world. It's not from hence. My kingdom is from heaven. That's why it's called the kingdom of heaven. And trust me, he can wage a war. 
he told one of his followers, he knew he wasn't going to cast pearls before swine, so he didn't tell Pilate much of anything. Pilate didn't learn anything by that exchange, as you can all tell by his actions. But to a man standing next to him, he said, Don't you know that I could presently call twelve legions of angels? Brethren, we are come to an innumerable company of angels. The Lord Jesus Christ could have called 72,000 angels, and they would have delivered him from any force in this universe. Jesus did not offer any other kingdom. The Pharisees demanded of him when the kingdom of God should come. In Luke chapter 17, he said the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. You can't see it. It's not what you're thinking. You're looking for an army to march into the streets of Jerusalem, declare it independent of Rome, and exalt Old Testament worship. My kingdom is not like that. He said, my kingdom is among you. My kingdom is already here. But you can't see it because it doesn't come with observation, especially to blinded Pharisees. We can see it because we can look and see Mary Magdalene's and others falling at the feet of Jesus and kissing the feet of their king and begging for mercy. We can see the kingdom, but they could not see it. Jesus told them, your house is left unto you desolate. God had left that house that they called their house of worship. He had called it my father's house in the front end of his ministry. And I've told you this before, but I want you to have this ingrained in you. And when he, when he walked out of it the last time, he said, your house is left unto you desolate. And he told his disciples, every stone in this place will be pulled down and pulled apart. He told the Jews that they weren't the children of Abraham. They were the children of the devil. John chapter 8 and verse 44. Resurrected and glorified in heaven. He told John in Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9. Those people that worship in the synagogue of Satan, I hate them. Who say they are Jews and are not. Because people that worship in synagogues who are Jews in their mind are not the Jews that Jesus Christ had in mind. The Jews in his mind is the Israel of God, the tabernacle of David, a company of believers made up of Jews and Gentiles. He told Nathaniel that you were an Israelite indeed, unlike the rest of your nation. An Israelite indeed. He never offered the nation of Israel any earthly kingdom. Did Paul offer a kingdom? No. He said the Jerusalem that is in this world is to be compared to Hagar and her son Ishmael, and the son of the bondwoman shall not be son with the heir with the, with, shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. They both get cast out. He said the Jerusalem that counts to all to the son of the free woman is Jerusalem which is above, the heavenly Jerusalem. Paul was consistent all the way through. He never offered a kingdom to the Jews. He said that the Jews and the Gentiles had been united in one body by the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said the heavens and the earth had been shaken for the last time, and the Old Testament was shaken away, and the final kingdom was here. He said that the Old, Old Testament promises about a new covenant being made with Israel were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ and the New Testament. He said that the glorious rest of God that had been promised to Israel through the Old Testament was fulfilled when? The rest of God. Was, it, was the rest of God the Sabbath day? Was the rest of God Canaan? But Psalm 95 says there remaineth a rest to the people of God. What is that rest? It's the gospel rest of the New Testament of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is why we call it a gospel millennium. And when we read Hebrews 3 and 4, we know that's not talking about heaven. We know it's not talking about Canaan. We know it's not talking about the seventh day of the week. It is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished works and the wonderful privilege to worship Him under the gospel. What did Paul say about a future kingdom to Israel? He told Hebrews, 
When I get an inspired Jew writing Jews, I get excited that maybe he's going to show a kingdom. I'm telling you, the book of Hebrews is so crucial. It's so precious, and it's so important. I have an inspired apostle who's a Jew writing to Jews. And he wanted to remind them in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, that Abraham wasn't looking for a millennial kingdom. Abraham wasn't looking for anything in this world. He was looking for a heavenly country and a city that God had built that had real foundations. Hebrews 11, 8 through 16. The Apostle Paul said that the true Jews were a spiritual seed by election, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. He said a true Israelite is one who's been born again in the spirit and not in the letter. Oh, brethren, you go through all the apostles. They preach the same message as John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God came under their ministry and they preached it worldwide and men believed it. And it's part of the mystery of the gospel that those men, fishermen by trade, some, a number of them by trade, tax collector, they went into the world and preached the gospel and Gentiles believed it and entered that kingdom and the tabernacle of David was raised up. And brethren, it is more real, whatever those words mean, it is more real, our kingdom today, than the kingdom of David of 3,000 years ago. It is more real. You say, how can it be more real than David? I wish I could have been there with David and his mighty men. Because that thing was temporal. This kingdom is forever. Jesus is on his throne at this hour. We are worshiping in the way he has chosen. For his, the citizens of his kingdom come together and worship, and that is what we are doing right now. We sing praise to his name. We love one another. We exhort one another in the Lord and provoke to love and to good works. We read his word. We preach his word. We pray. We sing. We praise. We obey. We serve. And we go out in the world and we serve our masters well. We have orders and decrees and ordinances from our king. How do you get into that kingdom? You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You believe the message of the Bible, that Jesus of Nazareth is God's Son. And you humble yourself before Him and repent of your sins. You own Him as your Lord and King. And you choose to get baptized in His name. If you do those things, when it comes to salvation, it's proof that you're already born again. But it's how you lay hold of that King and His kingdom and you enter it. May the Lord Jesus Christ be praised.